Take your Bibles this morning, turn with me if you would to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me clarify a couple of things this morning. First of all, we're not skipping the offering. It's going to be at the end of the service, so you will have an opportunity, you're dying, to, to go ahead and give, but if you'll just hold on a minute, it will come at the end of the service. The second thing is, I, I feel like I need to clarify one thing. I, I heard a couple of choir members this morning going around and sharing that what happened, which is ironic that there were a few of these sharing this, that the choir got raptured and we got left behind. And I just want to clarify, that is not true. They are, there is no way they're going and we're all staying. So uh, they just got a couple of weeks off. Um, anyway, looking forward uh, this morning to continue our Advent series. We have looked at these three themes so far, and we will complete our study of Luke 1 this morning. We began in the beginning of Luke, and we will come to the end this morning as we look at verses 57 through 80 in Luke chapter 1. Zachariah and Elizabeth, who we began with in this chapter, probably been married about 40 years. So all throughout that 40 years, they prayed and hoped for a child. For 40 years, they suffered the shame and reproach of not having a child because for 40 years, God remained silent. And day after day, year after year, they just continued to persevere in prayer. You'd have to imagine that after 40 years of praying, finding yourself in most likely your mid to late 60s, 60s you would have realized that the dream is gone, that this wasn't going to happen. And not only that, you might come to a place where you're not sure you actually want to have a child anymore. What's amazing is, is that after 40 years, they're still faithfully loving God and serving God. 40 years of a little bit of disappointment with God. And yet here they are still faithful. But it was after 40 years in which Zechariah walked into the temple one day and found himself confronted with an angel, which would have been a terrifying moment in of itself, in which the angel said, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard, and your wife Elizabeth in her old age is going to have a son. And you're going to name him John. And he's going to be great, and he's going to bring joy to your heart. But not only that, he will bring joy to the hearts of many. And as the angel begins to talk about who this son was going to be, it became very evident that this was not simply a son. This is a son that was promised in Malachi chapter 4 at the end of the Old Testament, a son that generation after generation, 12 generations of people had been waiting for, the son who is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah and prepare the way for the Messiah. And one of the strangest parts of the story is that when Zechariah was approached by the angel and was given this overwhelming news, he had a hard time believing that this was true. I think any of us would have had a hard time believing this was true. He questioned the angel, to which the angel responded, I came from the Lord. The Lord told me to tell you this. But because you have not believed, you will not be able to speak until this baby is born. For nine months, the entire time that Elizabeth was pregnant with this child, Zachariah wasn't able to talk. Now, we don't know exactly why this was. It could be that God, in his grace, knowing Elizabeth was most likely in her mid to late 60s and pregnant, needed a special gift. And the gift was her husband was unable to talk for nine months. There are theories out there that that could be true. So 
some of you might be asking for this for Christmas. I don't know if it's going to happen or not. But either way, can you imagine having nine months to just think? And nine, mo- nine months to just meditate and nine months to ponder. You receive this news, which is an overwhelming word from the Lord. After having waited and waited and waited and waited and then all of a sudden finding this news and then being unable to talk for the entire nine months. Now I have no idea what Zechariah was thinking about during those nine months. There's no way to know. But I I can think of some of the things I would be thinking about. Now I know you don't do this. I do this. But I'm sure you don't have imaginary conversations in your mind that you're going to probably never have with people. I saw someone say recently that Shower time is 5% soaping and 95% imaginary conversations. You know how this goes. I have to believe I would be thinking about this whole situation. You know, it, it says that Elizabeth was the one who was called barren. She does say that the Lord had taken away her shame and reproach. What that means is she experienced great shame and great reproach. It means that people referred to her not by her name, but behind her back, as the one who was barren. I just think if I was Zechariah, I would be formulating some things I would like to share with those people once I was able to talk. I would be thinking about all of the annoying parents that I had been with for the last 40 years who talk about how special their children is when everyone else knows their child is simply average. Bragging about how their child excels in this and this and this and all this way all the time. Zachariah doesn't have a child. Now he finds out he not only has a child, but he has one who's a fulfillment of prophecy. Your son might be special, but he's not this special. Like 400 years before he was born, there was not a prophecy about your son. And I can imagine things I would be formulating to be able to share with those who always thought their children were so great. What was he thinking about? Well, the truth is, is when we come to the end of Luke 1, having taken a break from Zechariah and Elizabeth for a moment, we come to the end of the nine months when the child was born and Zechariah is finally able to talk. It starts in verse 41 when it says, I'm sorry, it starts in verse 57 when it says this. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. By the way, I I think they're not the one in the mid-60s having a baby. So they're all rejoicing. You know what I'm saying? And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. That would have been been the normal thing. They've waited all these years for a child. You're going to name the child after your father. But, verse 60, his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. Now, verse 62 is incredible. I I want you to notice here. Now, they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. Now, we got to stop here and recognize for a while, John, I mean, Zachariah wasn't able to talk. He was not unable to hear. But yet they were making signs to him. Trying to get him to figure out what was going on in this moment. It's like going to a foreign country and thinking if you just talk louder, they're going to understand you. I said, where's the bathroom? And you realize talking louder doesn't help anything. They still can't understand you. So here's all these people doing sign language to John when John's hearing is fine. Of course, he is getting older. Maybe it's not fine. I don't know. But they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet. 
and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wonder. Now, the reason he did that is because the angel said his name was going to be John. Here it is in verse 64. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loose and he spoke. And he was blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about throughout the hill country of Judea. Everyone was talking about this. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Verse 67 says, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to prophesy. The first words of Zechariah are right here for us in verses 68 through 79. Much like it told us with Mary's Magnificat, Mary's song, she was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to exclaim praise to the Lord. So it is that Zechariah, after nine months, is able to talk. He is filled with the Holy Spirit and began to prophesy. He began to speak words from the Lord. Now, you would imagine that as he begins to talk, having nine months to think and to meditate on this, his words would be consumed with thoughts of a son. He'd waited 40 years for this son. And you're right, if you would imagine that, that every single part of this statement from verse 68 from the very beginning all the way to the end of verse 79 is all about a son. Zechariah has nine months to think and pray and meditate, and when he talks, he cannot stop talking about a son. The surprising part is this. It's not his son. He's not enamored with his son, he's enamored with another son. He is not consumed with the child that has been given to him. He is consumed with the child that is being given to us. He cannot stop talking about a son, but it was the son that is given to us, a child that is born to us. He is consumed with thoughts of another child because what John realizes is that the son that he was being given was the son who was coming to prepare the way for another son. And although John was thrilled at the birth of his son, what all of this meant is that the promises from generation to generation were finally being fulfilled and the significance was not Zachariah's son, but another son that was going to come right behind him. A son who is referred to all the way through Luke 1 as the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the son of God. Look at what he says in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, 
to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Describes Jesus as the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the son of God. And as Zechariah meditated and prayed, his heart became full, knowing that generation after generation had waited for the coming of the promised Messiah. And John was not only going to be able to see the time in which the Messiah was going to come, his son was going to come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Zechariah was overwhelmed with praise and glory because Christ was coming. But my question for us is, well, what is the significance of this child that was given to us and this son that was being born to us who is referred to as the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the son of God. And it is significant to see him this way, that Jesus is in fact the son of David, and that matters. And Jesus is the son of Abraham, and that matters. And he is the son of God, and that matters. And then it is important for us to realize, listen, do we know that this child has been given to us? This was a son born to us, to every one of us, are receiving this child. But why is it good news of great joy that we've been given the son of David, the son of Abraham, and the son of God? Let's look at that together as Zachariah rejoices in it and we start to understand its significance for us. I want to encourage you to write these things down. The first one is this. As the son of David, Jesus came to deliver you. As the son of David, Jesus came to deliver you. It says in verse 69 that he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This one who is going to be born was born of the house of David. If you go to Luke chapter 3 and you find the genealogy of Jesus Christ, you will see very clearly that the one who has come, Jesus Christ, is in fact a son of David. If you go to the other genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it will introduce Jesus to us as the son of David. And then if you were to start in Matthew and read all the way through, you would find ten times throughout the gospel of Matthew, Jesus is referred to as the son of David. All the way throughout scripture, Jesus is seen as the son of David. Now all of this comes from a promise that was made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 13. You might remember the story, David wanted to build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord said, David, that's not for you to do. And then he promises him in 2 Samuel 7 that one day a son is going to be born to you and he will build a house for me. But then it says that you will also have a son born to you and he will have an eternal kingdom and his kingdom will not end. He will rule and reign forever and ever and ever. And we start to see that this, like most prophecies, is partially fulfilled at one moment and fully fulfilled at another. This is the way prophecies normally work. So it is that a few years later, a son was born to David, and his name was Solomon, and he's the one that built the temple. And you can open up the book of 1 Kings and see the way in which the temple that David wanted to build was built by his son exactly like was prophesied to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But Solomon died. So Solomon cannot be the son who is coming to an establish an eternal kingdom that will not end. There had to be another son that was going to come from the lineage of David, from the house of David, who would establish a kingdom 
that would never end, that would rule and reign for all of eternity. So from that very moment in which Solomon died, every generation after that was still waiting for the fulfillment of another son of David who would come and establish an eternal kingdom. You start at 2 Samuel 7, you read throughout scripture, you'll see over and over the hope that someday the son of David was going to come. You look at Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, there is the hope that the son of David is going to come. You read Psalms 89, there is a hope that the son of David is going to come. In Ezekiel 34, in Ezekiel 37, and in Jeremiah 23, there is this promise that a son of David, he's going to come, he's going to come, he's going to come, and he's going to establish an eternal kingdom. Then you look at that well-known Christmas text in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, that a child is going to be born to us and a son will be given. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, and he will rule over the house of David for eternity. And then an angel comes and visits Mary. And the angel says to Mary in Luke 1, verses 31 and 33, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Exactly as was promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. Jesus was the promised son of David. You say, why why is it that they were so excited about the promised son of David? Because he was going to come like a warrior king. He was going to come and establish a kingdom and defeat his enemies. And every generation had waited for this warrior king to come. Look at what Zechariah says. He's going to come and redeem his people, verse 68. He is going to be a horn of salvation for us. He is going to make sure, verse 71, that we are saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. There is going to be a redeemer. There is going to be a savior. There is going to be a warrior king who will come and bring in a new kingdom. Now, I love that little phrase in verse 69. Look at that. Where talking about the son of David, it says that we have had by the Lord given to us someone who is raised up as a horn of salvation for us. Now that's a bit of an odd phrase, but it's a common phrase throughout Scripture. And it's a reference to the large horns that are most likely on an ox. That would have been in their mind, which God gave them to defend themselves and to protect themselves and to display their dominance over other animals. And they would put themselves in a posture in which they would raise their horns to be a defensive and a protective posture. And so it is this idea of a horn of salvation always comes with it, this idea of strength and power and dominance. This is why ancient warriors would wear helmets with horns on them. You've seen an idea of a Viking helmet with Uh, that's kind of just round here and has these large horns on it. They didn't use those. It's not like they were using those horns to hurt someone. They used those to establish their strength and dominance and their power. Now, I I have four daughters, and because of that, I end up having conversations a lot with guys who have a lot of daughters and one of kind of the things we always talk about is what are we going to do when guys start asking the girls out and they come to the house. And you know there's that kind of old thing that, well, when a guy comes to my house, I'm going to show up with a shotgun in hand. And I, I, that's kind of overplayed. We've been saying that for a long time. And 
Uh, I, I've decided, and I've thought about this a lot, I'm going to take a little bit more subtle approach. When a guy comes over to pick up one of my girls, I'm just going to be wearing a Viking helmet. <laughs> and I'm not going to mention it. I'm not going to say anything about it. I'll be wearing it when he comes. I'll be wearing it when he comes home, and I'm sitting on the porch. I'm just going to wear a Viking helmet. And what it does is just establish my dominance. Without me saying anything, it's an establishment of strength and power. That I have power over you. It's a Viking helmet. So it is this idea of a, of a horn of salvation displaying strength and power and dominance. And you see this throughout scripture. Psalm 18. David is talking about the way in which he's just been delivered from his enemies. And he says, God has become to me a horn of salvation. God has delivered me. He has defeated my enemies. God is fighting for me. In Psalm 132, it says that God will one day raise up a horn of salvation. There is going to be, from the lineage of David, a warrior king who is going to come to defend us and deliver us and save us from our enemies. And this is exactly what Jesus came to do. You say, well, listen, it doesn't appear that Jesus came as a warrior king. A couple of things I'll say. First of all, you're wrong. He did come as a warrior king. Second of all, this promise of this warrior king was partially fulfilled in his first coming and will be fully fulfilled in his second coming. But in his first coming, don't be fooled, Jesus came as a warrior king. Remember, when he began his ministry, he was baptized. He immediately went to the wilderness in which for 40 days he did battle against the enemy and did what none of us have ever done. For 40 days he won victory against the enemy when he was tempted by Satan and came out of the wilderness having gained the victory for 40 days. We have never done this for 40 minutes. Jesus did it for 40 days. He established his dominance and his strength and his power and established right then that he has come to wage a war. It may be a war that we do not see, but it is the greatest war that needs to be fought. And then in Mark chapter 1, Jesus begins his ministry. He walks into a temple, and when he walks into a temple, there is someone in the temple possessed by a demonic spirit. The demonic spirit then says, we know who you are, O holy one of God. The demons knew who Jesus was before anyone else had figured it out. It took the disciples till Mark chapter 8. But in Mark 1, a demon spoke out and said, We know who you are, O Holy One of God. Have you come to destroy us? They knew that a warrior king had arrived and he was waging a war against the prince of darkness and he was going to gain victory. And every time Jesus cast down a demonic spirit, every time he healed someone with sickness, he was waging war against the effects of sin. And then he went to the cross. And although Jesus does not appear to be a warrior king on the cross, he appears to be simply a crucified Jew. But the cross was Jesus Christ waging war against sin in a way that none of us could have ever accomplished as the perfect, righteous, holy son of God, having met every requirement of the law, which is demanded for all of us in order to have a relationship with God. Jesus then died to give his life as a sacrifice for us, waging war against death and sin and hell, and through his resurrection, demonstrating his authority and victory over all of those things. The greatest battle you fight is not against flesh and blood. The greatest battle that you fight is against sin and death and hell. And Jesus, through his death and resurrection, waged war and won that battle. He came as a warrior king. 
Now, there are those who still reject him. And there are those who still mock him. And there are those who use his name in vain. There are those who think he will not keep his promise. Revelation chapter 19 reminds us that one day this warrior king will come back and at this moment every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and he will no longer be riding a donkey. He will be riding a white horse and he will no longer be covered in his blood. He will be covered in the blood of his enemies and behind him will be all of us as Jesus in one last great battle defeats his enemy and establishes his kingdom on earth where we will rule and reign with him forever. He is the son of David. He is that ox who raises up the horns of salvation to demonstrate his victory and power and authority. I love this poetic thought by John Piper when he meditates on Luke chapter 1 and he talks about Satan as a roaring lion who's trying to devour us and Jesus as this warrior, this picture of an ox who has come to defend us. Now, listen carefully to this picture that he paints for us. Listen carefully. He says this. Satan may be a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but none of those who take refuge in Christ, the horn of our salvation, can be destroyed. If if I were an artist, he says, I would paint for my home a special Christmas painting and hang it on the wall near the manger scene. Now, listen, picture this. It would be one of those big oil canvases. The scene would be of a distant hill at dawn, and the sun is about to rise, and behind the hill are rays of sun shooting up and out of the picture. And all alone, silhouetted on the hill in the center of the picture, very dark, is a magnificent wild ox standing with his back seven feet tall and the crown of his head nine feet tall. On both sides of his head, there is a horn curving out and up six feet long and 12 inches thick at its base. He stands there, sovereign and serene, facing the southern sky with his massive neck slightly cocked. And impaled at the end of his right horn hangs a huge lion dead. Now that's not your typical Christmas picture. But if you want to sleep in heavenly peace, imagine that. That there is a roaring lion who is seeking someone to devour and he is after you. But be insured, the wild ox who has come to rescue and save us will destroy the lion. And in this life we suffer and in this life we battle. But do not lose hope. He will win. He has raised up a horn of salvation who has come to deliver you. And my question for you on that point is this. Have you been saved by him? He's been given to you. This gift of a warrior king has been given to you that he might free you from sin and death and slavery. I cannot imagine any reason that you would not receive him as your king. The son of David has come to deliver you. Write down the second one. As the son of David, Jesus has come to deliver you. But as the son of Abraham, Jesus came to bless you. As the son of David, Jesus came to deliver you. But as the son of Abraham, write that down, Jesus has come to bless you. 
It says that an oath has been sworn to our fathers that Abraham to grant us that we've been delivered from the hand of our enemies and on and on. This is someone also coming as a son of Abraham. And Luke chapter 3 in the lineage there says that Jesus was in fact the son of Abraham. You go to Matthew 1, he was the son of David, he was also the son of Abraham and that matters to us. It matters that Jesus is the son of Abraham because a promise that was made to Abraham. You see, start in verse 72 and look at what it says. This one is coming to show the mercy promised to our fathers. It's referring to the promise made to Abraham. And to remember his holy covenant, the covenant made to Abraham. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. An oath, a covenant, and a promise were given to Abraham. And listen, we were included on that promise. Because Abraham, who also was advanced in years, whose wife also could not have a child, was told by God that he was going to have a child. And from his child, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It was a promise of a coming son of Abraham, Jesus Christ, who through him would bless the nations. That there is blessing for those who are a part of the children of God. Because the son of Abraham has come to fulfill the promise given in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, I will give you a son and through him all the nations will be blessed. That is a promise fulfilled fully in Jesus Christ. The son of Abraham has come to bless you. Now we talked about this a little last week. But the way that goes is this way. Jesus is the blessed one. All of the blessings in all the heavenly places belong to Jesus Christ. Every blessing the Father has is Jesus's. There's no blessing that he does not have. All of the blessing is poured out on the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. But the Bible says this, is that when we come to faith and trust in Jesus Christ, when we make Jesus Christ our Lord, when we trust him as our savior and enter into a relationship with him, all of the blessing that belongs to Jesus also belongs to us that we're united with Jesus Christ, listen, and we become also children of Abraham, not by birth, but by adoption. We are adopted into the family of God. We are adopted into the family of Abraham and all of the blessings that belonged to Jesus and all of the blessings promised to Abraham are now given to us. It's exactly why Ephesians 1 says we have received all of the blessings in the heavenly places. Jesus has come. That by your relationship with him, you might receive all of the blessings promised generations and generations ago. Now look at what it says on the reason that we have these blessings. He's going to fulfill this promise, this covenant, this oath, verse 73. That's the promise of blessing. That, that we who've received Christ... Past tense, because the son of David has come, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. So the first step is we must be delivered. We must be saved. We must come into relationship with Jesus Christ. Having been delivered from the hand of our enemies, we might now serve him without fear. In holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. What he's saying is this. The great purpose of deliverance is not simply deliverance. The great purpose of deliverance is that by being saved, you might enter into the blessing of knowing Jesus Christ and serving Jesus Christ. 
that there's no greater blessing in all of the world than knowing Jesus Christ. There is no greater blessing in all of the world than living your life in submission to Jesus Christ. There is no greater blessing in all of the world than serving Jesus Christ, that nothing else compares to the blessing of walking in intimate fellowship with Jesus and serving him. What he's saying is this, if you will come to the son of David and be freed from your sins, you then receive all of the blessings of the son of Abraham, which allows you to know and serve Jesus Christ. Now, do you know, the message of the gospel is always this, you must trust Jesus. There's a couple of parts to that. Let's listen carefully. If, if you are debating about following Jesus Christ, maybe Jesus Christ is just kind of out there, he's a thing for you, you know him, but you're not really following him. Let me, let me explain this to you. Part of trusting Jesus is trusting that you're a sinner and only Jesus can save you. That's it. That there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. And so if you reject Jesus, you will pay for your own sins for all of eternity in hell, which is a real place. But you have the opportunity this morning to trust Jesus. Jesus, I trust your death as sufficient payment for my sins, and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. So you trust his death, but there's another part of that. You also have to trust that Jesus is better than anything else the world has to offer you. You see, that's the reason most people are not receiving Jesus, because they believe that what's out here is better than Jesus. So they reject Jesus to get something better. Part of what you have to believe by faith is that Jesus is always better. No matter what the world offers you, Jesus is always better. Whatever it is that is keeping you from trusting Christ, Jesus is better. And one of the ways we know that is because we're reminded that the son of Abraham has come to bless you. And the greatest blessing in all of the world is living for Jesus Christ. But you have to believe that. You have to believe that Jesus is better to the extent that you will gladly leave the world behind and embrace Jesus Christ. Because by faith you believe that what he has to offer you is better. Will you humble yourself enough to acknowledge you're wrong and he's right? And what he has is better than anything that you could ever have on your own. As the son of David, Jesus has come to deliver you. As the son of Abraham, Jesus has come to bless you. Let me give you the last one. As the son of God, Jesus has come to guide you. As the son of God, Jesus has come to guide you. That's verses 78 and 79. Because of the tender mercy of our God. You say, what is God's heart towards you? Tender mercy. The tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, a picture of Christ, shall visit us from on high. A picture of a light coming into the world. And why has he come? To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. And to guide our feet into the way of peace. Look at the picture that's, that's painted for us. First of all, this picture of the sunrise from on high visiting us. We sing about Emmanuel, Emmanuel, Emmanuel. That is God with us. So this is a picture of Emmanuel. God has coming to visit us. But he's painted as, as a light. And it says in verse 79 that he has come to give light to those who sit in darkness. That, that, that's a picture that needs to settle in in your heart for just a little bit. The reason it says to those who sit in darkness is because you might wander around in the darkness for a while, but after a while you'll realize that the only thing to do in darkness is just to sit. This is a picture of those who don't know Christ. 
You may be wandering around and doing all your things and thinking you're living this great life independent from Christ. But what he says is the reality is, is you're sitting in darkness. You can't see in front of you. You can't see behind you. You can't see to the right or to the left. You have no vision of the future. There is nothing but sitting in darkness for you. And every single one of us is born, Ephesians 2, dead in our trespasses and sin and walking in darkness. Sitting in darkness. But in the midst of the darkness of our sin, the sunrise from on high has visited us, giving light to those who sit in darkness. And to do this, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So what Zechariah is proclaiming is this, is listen, what God wants to do is he wants to send his very son, the son of God, who is going to say, listen, I am the light of the world, John 8, and, and John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if you ever want to know how to get to the Father, if you ever want to know the way of peace, the way of joy, the way of hope, the way of love, if you want to experience any of the blessings God has promised, then you must follow the light. You must allow Jesus to guide you. You must acknowledge that you have no ability to make it on your own. But you will submit your life to the one who knows better than you, the one who has the way, and you will trust him to lead you in the way of peace. Meaning that those who don't know Christ know nothing of the way of peace. As the Son of God, Jesus has come to guide you into the way of peace. question I ask is, what about the son of Zechariah? I mean, that's how this whole thing started. Luke 1 started with the son of Zechariah coming, and then Luke 1 ends with the son of Zechariah, and it seems that the son of Zechariah has been lost in all of this. But no, he does get two verses, 76 and 77. He now begins to focus his attention on, on his child, on his son. And you, child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Let me tell you what Zechariah realized in the nine months in which he was waiting for his son. Listen carefully. He realized this. The real significance of his son is found in his relationship with the other son, Jesus Christ. You see, that's true for every one of us. Our search for significance is found in Jesus Christ. Our significance is found in our proximity to Jesus Christ, in our closeness to Jesus Christ. What Zechariah is saying is, my son is significant. Why? Because of his relationship with Jesus Christ. Outside of that, there is no significance. It's just, just another son. No, no, it is his relationship with Jesus. And I love what he says here. He says that his significance is found in giving the knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. That our significance is found in our relationship with Jesus Christ and in our giving the knowledge of salvation to those who do not know Christ. That's where we find our significance. Our significance is found in Christ. I'm reminded every year about this time. It usually starts about a week earlier than this. And I think this will resonate with you, how easy it is to celebrate Christmas and forget about Christ. There's just so much going on. There's so much shopping and just a little bit of drama in most of our families. There's just a lot going on. And it's just so easy to allow Christmas to overshadow Christ and we no longer see Christ. And the purpose of our time this morning here, just a couple of days before Christmas, is to hopefully allow all of the worries of Christmas to go away just for a moment and for you to see Christ. 
And for you to come this morning to the realization that only Christ can bless you and only Christ can guide you and only Christ can deliver you, that there is nothing in this life that matters apart from Jesus Christ. So have you been saved? Is he the one who is guiding you? Have you received the blessing of knowing Jesus Christ? Listen, I beg you this morning. The greatest gift that you can receive is the gift that has been given to you and his name is Jesus Christ. And coming with him comes all of the hope and all of the joy and all of the peace and all of the love, but only for those who know Christ. I pray this morning it would be you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.